Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Burt's Books podcast. Unlucky for some and nearly unlucky for me because I nearly didn't get to record this episode. I was going to start off by telling you how proud I was of myself for fully getting into the uh, routine of lockdown and how like a bit like Stockholm Syndrome I was you know going to miss it all when I was finally allowed back out again. But the routine went to pieces today. The sun was shining. I've got a Maltesers Easter egg. I was sitting outside my back door in the garden reading. And um, it is now currently uh, 20 to 10 at Saturday night. And I'm only just getting around to recording this week's episode. So we're going to try and do it all in one take so that I don't have to spend too long editing it. Uh, but yeah, so routine of the lockdown is going really well for me. Um, I am on my own and I, I'm just sort of powering through. Uh, I do think I, I will miss it in a way uh, because I'm being quite productive at the moment. But I am getting out every day, uh, which is nice because I have to go and send off deliveries of books. And with the sun shining, you know, standing out the queue for the co-op isn't that bad. Um, and... Yeah, that is a not-so-subtle hint for you all to keep buying books so that I can keep going out for a little wonder in the sunshine. Uh, spending all this time inside, I don't know about any of you, while I've been fully intending to read more, I do end up doing all the little jobs at home, apart from today, obviously. The junk drawer in the kitchen has had a thorough decluttering, as have most of my emails. So I wonder if you guys are the same, whether you're reading a bit more or whether you're actually finally getting round to doing all those little jobs that you've been meaning to do. Coming up on this week's podcast, I've got reviews of two great books for you. But as well, this week is a little bit chartastic because not only do we catch up on last week's bestsellers, but I've also got the best-selling titles of the year so far. And that is what we're going to start with on the other side of this music. If you've been listening to the podcast over the last couple of weeks, you will know that the data which I usually rely on for the charts has been somewhat lacking uh, because of so many closed shops. However, I am a little bit of a statistics geek. I love spreadsheets. I love numbers, formulas and analysing them and I've spent many many years thoroughly analysing book sales uh, both in certain areas certain businesses and across the UK so I have spent part of this week coming up with a semi-reliable way of estimating all of the individual sales numbers. It might be wrong, I might have got it completely wrong but if it is wrong then I have at least got it wrong for every single title thanks to the ranking that has been provided by Nielsen Book Scan. And I've done all of this so that I can bring you the best-selling books of the year so far from the beginning of January right to the end of the March. If you listened to the podcast a few weeks ago, you will know that Pinkley of Nom and Charlie Mackesy were taking the top spots in the chart of the year and they've both been really selling well all year and for the last month, you'll know that from listening to the previous week's charts. But you will also know that March saw the release of the latest Hilary Mantel novel, The Mirror and the Light, which has been at the top of the weekly charts since its release. 
And now it does make the top 10 of the year on just its five weeks of sales, but where does it enter? There is only one way to find out. Holding steady at position 10, it's David Walliams with The Beast of Buckingham Palace. Down one at nine is Yo Nesbo and Knife. Also down one at eight is this year's Costa Prize winner, The Volunteer by Jack Fairweather. Lisa Jewell is down from six to seven with The Family Upstairs, while Bridget Collins takes slot six with The Binding. At five, it's the newest Jackson Brody, Big Sky by Kate Atkinson, but down one at four, it's Pinch of Nom by Kay Featherston and Kate Allenson. New in at three, pushing all of those books down one place, is the top ten's only new entry, The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. It's no move at two for Charlie Mackesy, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse, which means that The Pinch of Nom Everyday Light by Kay Featherston and Kate Allenson is still at number one. So Pinch of Nom still holding on to that top spot a quarter of the way through the year. But Charlie Mackesy's sales during March were double that of Pinch of Nom, in fact more than double. So he is closing the gap. And there are a few titles just outside of the top 10 which are doing really well as well. So I think we might see some big changes in the top 10 next month. Including probable new entries from David Walliams and Mrs Hinch. More on both of them a little bit later on. But I also know what you're all wondering. If these are the best-selling books in the whole of the country, what are the best-selling books on Burt's Books? Well, bundle titles, as you'd expect, continue to dominate the top five, but I do want to give a special mention to Greg Jenner and Dead Famous, who is sitting quite nicely at six and is the highest-selling non-bundle choice. But let's go into the top five. Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid kicks us off, which is followed by Candice, Carty, Williams and Queenie at four. The Home by Sarah Stovall is at three, while at two is The Long Call by Anne Cleves. Storming straight into the lead, though, is this month's, one of this month's crime paperbacks. It's The Chain by Adrian McKinty. The first book I read this week was Q by Christina Doucher. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because she wrote Vox, the near-future thriller from a couple of years ago where women were limited to just 100 words a day. Q is told in a similar vein. It's another near-future thriller, one that doesn't necessarily feel like it's a million miles away. But this time everyone is given a Q score. The blurb explains it much better than I can, so let's just go straight into that. Eleanor Fairchild is a teacher at one of the state's new elite schools. Her daughters are exactly like her, beautiful, ambitious and perfect. A good thing since the recent mandate that swept the country is all about perfection. Now everyone must undergo routine tests for their quotient Q and any children who don't measure up are placed into new government schools. Instead, teachers can focus on the gifted. Eleanor tells herself it's not about eugenics, not really. But when one of her daughters scores lower than expected and is taken away, she intentionally fails her own test to go with her. But what Eleanor discovers is far more terrifying than she ever imagined. 
I really enjoyed Vox, but it spent a long time world building, which meant that the ending was a little bit rushed. Q is different in that respect. Uh, Eleanor is obviously used to help build the world early on, uh, but it didn't go into a huge amount of detail. Instead, it sort of lets us learn about it over time. One thing, though, was it did take a while to learn Eleanor's name. I mean, I could have looked at the blurb, but uh, it didn't occur to me at the time. So instead, I was just a little bit tense until uh, it was finally mentioned. But once that was out of the way, I did really get into it, and the plot took hold quite, quite, with a, quite a grip. Uh, the story alternated between the present day and the past, giving an insight into how Eleanor and her husband kind of came up with this idea whilst they were at school. This whole uh, d- demerit points for the for the popular kids who fail the exams, while the clever kids, the geeks, uh, they they sort of got the best slots in school they got to go free tickets to the football games and things like that and Eleanor and her husband were these geeks the clever kids and they helped turn the system on its head in their school and they changed things so that the popular kids ended up being looked down on almost and and sort of forced to the back of the queue in the canteen and kind of that is what it was about it was it was about who gets the cheeseburger and who ends up with the the salad and it's the sort of thing that if it was happening at the end of a teen movie, we'd probably cheer it. You know, the the sort of plain girl who takes off her glasses and looks amazing, you know, suddenly gets the guy and, and the cheerleader has to eat salad. Um, and not even the nice bit of salad as, as, as what happens in this uh, book. But Q instead ends up going really dark with it and it highlights the similarities to uh, Apartheid, uh, segregation in the US and you know just a little thing like the Nazis and their eugenics programs it does give you a lot of things to think about but it really focuses on the ordeals of Eleanor and what she goes through to help her daughters with one particular scene being harrowing I would say and quite graphic from a character point of view Eleanor is a little bit unsympathetic at times, uh, certainly prior to that that scene. She's kind of the architect of her own misery. And while at the beginning she's unhappy, she isn't spurred into action until her daughter is taken away. It's, it's that classic thing of, when they came for the Jews, I did nothing. When they came for the gays, I did nothing. Who will help now they've come for me? It, But perhaps it's her actions early on you know, that, that help cause the situation that they're in, which is what makes her try to break the system. The other mothers, some of them campaigned for uh, the fitter family regime, uh, and they're shocked and distraught when their kids are taken away. But they've got somewhere to funnel their blame. You know, Eleanor and her husband, the government. But Eleanor doesn't, because it's it's her fault. At least that's kind of what her husband makes her think. Uh, really, she's he manipulated her into a lot of it. it it seems quite clear that even when she's coming up with these ideas he's really just guiding her towards them and he comes across as a bit pantomime um at times and actually the kids we don't really see anything from their point of view it's all told from Eleanor's mindset and she feels very very real but I'd like a bit more from the other characters I think um but what I wanted out of it 
was a better ending than Vox, and this does deliver. There are still some issues, such as the, the sort of the other characters, and and the resolution does feel a bit rushed still, and the world beyond the climax kind of doesn't get explored, but it does make a bit more sense here, and the character resolution for for our main character Eleanor is much much better, and I think really what what it comes down to is that my biggest problem with Q and also ultimately with Vox is that the books are just too short they both invent these new worlds and it feels like we only get to see a glimpse of them Christina Doucher is no doubt a great world builder and plotter and she takes a what if situation and really really runs with it and it feels real Uh, but I want to see more of it and I think for her next book I, I would really like to see a bit more time exploring all the detail and the consequences so if her next book ends up being double the size of Q, I think I will be a very happy man. Uh, Q is available to pre-order. It's out on the 30th of April, and I do highly recommend that you get yourself a copy. Now, last week, I asked you who your favourite author is. You know, the one author who blows it out of the water for you every time. The one who's every book you've read. And I kind of put it that way because I wanted to push people into thinking about it a bit more than just, you know, reflexively saying a certain author because they really enjoyed the series. So like, for instance, I don't know if I can, I don't know if you can call yourself uh, a massive fan of J.K. Rowling's writing, if you've never read The Casual Vacancy, or if you didn't like The Casual Vacancy. I think you can be a massive Harry Potter fan and not have read um, The the Casvac, cash, as I, I used to call it in work. But I don't know if you can say that he's your favourite author if, if, if you haven't read it or didn't like it. So that's what I wanted people to think about. And I always ask the weekly question on Twitter on a Friday. And... The mistake of uh, doing that this week was that you all did really think about it. Uh, R.I.P. my mentions, as the cool kids sometimes say on Twitter. I had a huge number of replies and it really struggled to, to keep up with them. Uh, and because I care about what you all think, I did go for about 90% of the replies. Uh, some of them they were list they were just listing 25 different authors and i feel like that isn't your favorite author i you know one or two three four maybe but you're just listing people that you look for in the shop and and some of them some great authors were mentioned but they have one book out and i don't think that that person can be your favorite author yeah it could be absolutely your favorite book but what if their next one's really rubbish are you still comfortable saying that your favourite author? Mm, I don't know. Anyway, over 200 authors, different authors were mentioned, or at least uh, that I was able to spot. And over 50 of them got two or more votes. So there's a huge, huge range. And just go and have a look at the question. Uh, if you search for the hashtag important Friday question, you will find my original tweet and then all the answers uh, after that. Now, some of the folks at the top included uh, Claire McIntosh, Ian Rankin, J.K. Rowling, Marion Keyes, David Nichols, and uh, none of my favourite authors, actually. I'm not going to embarrass them by mentioning them now, but uh, they weren't there. 
Uh, but the two who got the most mentions actually tied for first place with the same number. And they were C.L. Taylor and Terry Pratchett. Uh, C.L. Taylor writes some great thrillers. I've I've not read them all, uh, but I've read the last couple. Really, really enjoyed those. So um, check those out if you haven't yet. And Terry Pratchett probably doesn't need much of an introduction from me. I haven't read a Terry Pratchett for about 20 years. I tried reading one when I was in school and I didn't quite get into it. And I've just never found the way into that world ever since. Um, But one day, one day I will get round to it. Now for this week, I am going to try and ask a slightly less popular question just to give me the chance to try and keep up. As you all know, I am getting ready to open up a physical version of Burt's Books, and so I'm going to need your help. Uh, the, the the space is not going to be big. I need to uh, find the right types of books and the right series of books to, to fill the space. And so I want to know what your favourite genre of fiction or your favourite category of non-fiction is. Help me work out how much space I should devote to each one. And be creative, you know. The the sort of normal genres are crime, thriller, historical, romance, sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Great, if you love those, fantastic. But do you know what? If the thing that really gets you going is, like, time travel books, tell me it's time travel. Or if you like books set in space, it's space. Or, you know, be specific. If you like books that are read, tell me that. Um, yeah, so help me work out how much space I should devote to which genres when I open up. Let me know on Twitter at Burt's Books or email me, Burt at Burt'sBooks.co.uk. Now, my second uh, review this week is Pretending by Holly Bourne. It's her second adult novel. Uh, last year's How Do You Like Me Now? Uh, was her first, and obviously she's written some YA books before, which I haven't actually read. Now, a bit like Q and Vox, I'm coming to uh, pretending with hopes that it will avoid some of the mistakes of the previous book. Maybe mistakes isn't the right word. Some of the some of the things I didn't like as much. Uh, How do you like me now? Featured a character who I just didn't find likable. Um, So while the book was good and the plot was good, and I know a lot of people really, really loved it, I struggled with it at times uh, just to really care about this woman and and sort of like some of the stuff that was happening to her. I was like, well, you brought it on yourself. But I wanted to give Holly Bourne another go. She's a good writer, uh, a good plotter. So I moved pretending to the top of my pile. Now, what is this one about? Well, here is the blurb. He said he was looking for a partner in crime, which everyone knows is shorthand for a woman who isn't real. April is kind, pretty and relatively normal, yet she can't seem to get past date five. Every time she thinks she's found someone to trust, they reveal themselves to be awful, leaving her heartbroken and angry. If only April could be more like Gretel. Gretel is exactly what men want. She's a regular, everyday, manic, pixie dream girl next door with no problems. Apart from one. Gretel isn't real. 
and April is now claiming to be her. As soon as April starts being Gretel, dating becomes much more fun, especially once she reels in the unsuspecting Joshua. Finally, April is the one who can control. But can she control her own feelings? And as she and Joshua grow closer, how long will she be able to keep pretending? I'm so glad I did give Holly Bourne another go. This one had me smiling early on and laughing out loud several times too. And I think I've said before in, in previous podcasts, I'm, I'm not a big laugher when it comes to books. So this is a massive success uh, for me. Some aspects of the book are pretty heavy, uh, like, you know, trigger warning type stuff here. Uh, particularly later on, but the balance between that and the humour works quite well for me. And Bourne chooses a subject that we're all familiar with, dating, and really breaks it down, bringing out all the old cliches in a way that, you know, a stand-up comic might do a routine on. But the structure of the book is really good as well. It sort of flicks between prose to a dating lesson from Gretel to transcripts of text messages, which really sort of help the whole thing flow and especially midway through when when a week's worth of time is passed in one chapter which is just text messages and emails and it's the sort of thing that on screen it would be a montage and this is a really good way of telling it and it it helped me visualize it in my mind's eye Uh, and I did see it as as that sort of montage type blurry edges it's a hilarious book um and really touching as well. I mean, you really do end up rooting for April, even sort of against Gretel in a way. Um, there's one chapter where it's just a conversation between April and Gretel. She ends up talking to um, her a lot, actually, in like the mirror and stuff. And it ends up feeling like an abusive relationship in itself, which is interesting considering the uh, the theme. Now, I think it's a book that a lot of men could probably do with reading. There's a subset of male culture which sort of gets shorthanded to not all men. You know, the men who reply with not all men when the male gender is called out for being aggressive or violent. And and Bourne puts it really, really well in this book. You know, if you if a girl is walking down the street and it's dark, she might sort of flink away from a man who's walking behind her and he might be fine he might you know never in a million years dream of hurting anyone and he might say to her look not all men are going to attack you and Hollyborn puts it well when she says no not all men do but all men can and it's the fear that is sometimes worse is more crippling and and it's not just the act that they're scared of it's just the possibility of the act i already consider myself uh, as quite woke quite sensitive to a lot of the topics raised in this book but i did learn a lot by reading this uh particularly about the female body a certain part of it um which i didn't really know a lot about for a full disclosure uh and i think it's books like this that can really help to change minds and change outlooks so i i'd almost like to see a copy of this book get put into every man's hands but as well as that every woman's hands as well because they will identify hugely with 
April, I'm sure, and that will probably make it even funnier for them, and maybe even a little bit more touching and moving. Pretending by Hollyborn is available to order now. The news this week is... There isn't really any news. I mean... It's not strictly true. There's still sort of one big story that's out there and impacting on everything else. Um, But that kind of means that the book world, not a lot's happening. Huge amounts of staff have been furloughed. um, And bookshops are closed. uh, Wholesalers are closed. Pub dates are being moved, even. But there is one thing that I want to highlight, which is Rough Guide. Now, you might have seen these in the travel guides part of the shops they're they're kind of one part of the publishing world that's suffering at the moment um obviously book sales are down but individual titles are actually still doing quite well um education books for instance are going well kids books are still doing quite well you know it's 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 not a disaster i would say for uh for the book world as long as it doesn't go on too long but I think one area that could really struggle is is the travel guides section. Obviously, nobody is travelling at the moment. Nobody. And so n- nobody's going to be buying those books. So to encourage you to come back to them once all this is over, Rough Guides are giving everyone a free ebook, which will help you plan your next trip. It covers a massive wide range of destinations and gives you a little bit of info about each of them. Um... So you can use that uh, to plan your next holiday for when this is all over. You just need to search for Rough Guides, uh, head to their website and download it to your device. And then you can start daydreaming about where you might travel to once you're out of lockdown. The biggest piece of news in the world of Bert's books this week is that I have given sister of Bert, that's her name on Twitter, uh, in case you're wondering why I'm calling her that, I've given sister of Bert access to start adding her own books to the website. I may end up regretting this, and I sort of dread to think of the things that might start turning up, but if you see anything that seems a bit odd, you can blame her. Uh, The chances are, though, what she will do is add lots and lots of kids' books uh, for my niece, um, either the she wants to read or has read and really loves so you can have a little bit more confidence that uh certainly the picture book side of things are are much more tried and tested than they might have previously been although i do read all of the picture books that come into the shop now it's been minutes minutes since we had a last had a chart rundown so it's time for us to look at the best-selling books of the last week now, once again, the lockdown has provided us with a lot lower sales, although my estimate is it's slightly better than the previous week. Uh, but it is obviously a different landscape of books which are now selling. So there are five uh, new releases this week. And in fact, here's a statistic for you. There are only two books in this week's top ten which have been in the chart longer than two weeks. So as I mentioned earlier, there is a new one from David Walliams, Slime. But also, The Little Book of Lists from Mrs. Hinch. If you don't know who Mrs. Hinch is, she's a bit like Marie Kondo, you know, cleaning, giving you all of that inspiration to really clean through and declutter. I kind of do it 
did it already um, anyway, but she really does give you sort of good tips on how to do it. And Mrs. Hinch had a book out last year, which sold massively well, huge amounts. And it it sold well in, in January this year, sort of in the sort of world of better you, new year, new you, all that sort of thing. Now, last week we saw the return of her activity journal to the top 10, um, I'm guessing because a result of all the extra time that everyone has at home. But as well as that, obviously, there is her new one, which is the Book of Lists. Also new into the top 10 this week are Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, the Disney Frozen 2 sticker book, and Blue Moon, which is the new one from Lee Child. But where do all of these end up, and will any of them be able to stop Hilary Mantel's reign at the top? There is, as ever, only one way to find out, and that is by using data sourced from Nielsen Bookscan's Total Consumer Market panel chart. It's the first of five this week's new entries at ten with Delia Owens' Where the Crawdad Sings. Also new in at nine is Blue Moon by Lee Child. Down five places at eight is Nothing Ventured by Geoffrey Archer, while James Patterson and Candice Fox drop three places to seven with The Inn. Up two places at six is Mrs Hinch's Activity Journal, while down three places at five is The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse by Charlie Mackesy. New in at four, probably thanks to the DVD release of the film and bored parents everywhere, is Disney's Frozen 2 sticker book. Down two places at three is last week's number one, Hilary Mantel, The Mirror and the Light. David Walliams just fails to secure the number one spot with Slime, missing out to Mrs. Hinch's book of lists. It's a strange time when David Walliams doesn't make it to number one in his first week, I've got to say. Uh, So um, some strange effects, but you know, Mrs. Hinch, was a very popular book last year so uh, perhaps no surprise that she was the one to do it i am expecting to see lots of clean uncluttered houses on the other side of this lockdown there is literally no excuse now Uh, as well as all of that i am looking forward to next week's chart to see if david walliams can make it to the top spot but i did just want to draw your attention to one other book before i went And that is When the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. It was published way back in December. So for it to suddenly pop into the top 10 this week is quite an achievement. So I had a look back over the last few weeks. It's selling really well, really solidly. solidly, A few thousand every week. Um, I think this is one to keep an eye on, you know. It could end up making it into the list of sort of best-selling books of the year. Uh, most paperbacks sort of only really last six weeks and then they peak, you know, they peak and then they, they start dropping down. This is going 12 already and doesn't show any signs of slowing down. So if you want to get in, uh, not quite at the ground floor, but a bit before the hype really kicks in, now might be the time to order a copy. Well, that is everything for this week. Uh, so thank you for listening to me waffle on and I apologise if none of it makes sense. It is quite late now. Uh, but do check out burtsbooks.co.uk if you need a new book. Uh, but as I said previously, bear with if it takes a little bit longer to reach you. Some publishers I can get hold of fairly quickly, others may take two to four weeks. 
uh, it's it's a bit of a um, a bit of a lottery. Uh, so get in touch. Let me know what you want. I will come back and tell you how long it's going to take. Uh, hopefully, you're not in a rush for it. But if you are in a rush, let me know because there might be something that I can do. I might be able to pull in a few favors here and there. So get in touch on social media uh, at Burt's Books or via email Burt at burtsbooks.co.uk. Finally, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, as ever, please rate and review it on your podcast store and share it with your friends so that you can listen and get inspiration for some lovely new books too. That's it. I am off to Mrs. Hinch, the rest of my flat, but I will be back next week for some more book chat. Bye-bye.